Welcome to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. In this episode, Brendan Toomey, author of many books about Dublin, examines the life and works of Sir John T. Gilbert. The 15th annual Sir John T. Gilbert lecture was recorded in front of a live audience at Dublin City Library and Archive on the 23rd of January 2012. Thank you very much. So again, as you've been told, tonight is the 15th Gilbert Lecture, and Gilbert is primarily remembered today um, to use the subtitle of a, uh, uh, of, a, of a book published about him 10 years ago or so with association of people in this room as a, a historian, archivist, and librarian. And, but he, to his contemporaries, and he described himself, he was known as the historian of Dublin. John Gilbert, and don't forget he was only Sir John for the last year of his life, so I will refer to him primarily as John Gilbert, uh, was a Dubliner. He was born on the 23rd of January 1829, again as we've been told exactly 183 years ago. Uh, Following his death in a far-sighted move, Dublin Corporation purchased his library of about 10,000 items, as we've been told, for £2,500, not inconsiderable sum in those days. And it has been housed in this building since this building opened over 100 years ago. For that 100 years, the Gilbert Collection here has provided historians of Dublin, historians of the 18th century, and historians of history writing with plenty of material. Now, my history professors taught me that one should start a biographically-based lecture with an apposite quote from the dedicatee, preferably a short, pithy one that captures something of the essence of the person. Unfortunately, uh, John T. Gilbert didn't do short, pithy uh, uh, sentences, so you'll have to make do with a quotation which which does capture him from his 1864 book uh, on the history, position and treatment of the public records of Ireland, where he used the uh, nom de plume, or perhaps we should say the nom de guerre, uh, of an Irish archivist. And he says, quote, A solid and permanent public good would result from the publication, in their integrity, of the original documents, in the presence of which should rapidly fade away those romances styled Irish histories by which Ireland has been and must continue to be historically mistaught and deluded until confronted by the facts. Not exactly short, but it does express very much a theme that I'll come back to again and again throughout the session. Reading again uh, to prepare for tonight, I was looking up what modern writers say about this type of uh, subject, and Anthony Marwick, for example, uh, in 2001, The New Nature of History, arrives at roughly the same conclusion, where he says, as long as countries go on teaching their biased versions of history, so long will conflicts and tensions exist between different countries. Accurate professional history is is a necessity if tensions and suspicions are ever to be removed. So really the same sentiment 100 100 years later. And of course it goes without saying that in uh, Peace Process Ireland and when we're about to enter a decade of uh, commemoration that maybe we should remember those thoughts, John Gilbert's thoughts, Uh, uh, going forward. And again, uh, I see the exhibition outside. You can see some of those thoughts displayed in terms of of his work. So, who was this John Gilbert of whom we speak? Well, first of all, he isn't John John Gilbert, the uh, the painter. He isn't John Gilbert, the movie star from the 1920s. He is John Thomas Gilbert of Dublin. And in the principle of uh, lecturing of tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you've told them, I'm going to cover my three topics. In other words, a brief biographical sketch with some comments on the man, 
a brief review of his works. Again, I can only cover some of them because they are so extensive. And an overview of the context within which he was operating. What was he trying to do and how did it fit in? So, to set off, John Gilbert was born in Jervis Street, 23 Jervis Street, uh, in, in, in 1829, in the then fashionable north side of, of Dublin. He was the youngest of the five children and the second son of John Gilbert and Marianne Costello. The original house was long demolished, Penny's um, store is now on the site, and there is a plaque on the side of the building erected with the good offices of some people in this room commemorating John, John Gilbert. His father, also called John, died in 1833, leaving Marianne a widow with five children. Both of his parents came from wealthy middle-class merchant families, uh, should we say, very much trade and very much not land or the professions, which, of course, is an interesting uh, image in itself. There's some examples of, of the uh, firm. They were in the wine and cider importing, importing business, and his father was the consul uh, in Dublin, consul in Dublin for Portugal. Um, his mother's family were coach builders and operated out of the, uh, the, the neighbouring building in, in Jervis Street. Um, and so, as I said, from trade. In 1905, seven years after the death of Gilbert in 1898, his widow, the novelist and children's writer Rosa Mulholland, published a biography of Gilbert, which she styled a memoir. Now, while at times her text borders on the hagiographical, and uh, uh, border, I think, is being, is being uh, kind, um, she was a novelist, after all, uh, it does contain some important observations and some important insights uh, into late Victorian uh, Ireland. And likewise, in a somewhat ironic twist, given Gilbert's uh, dedication to the publication of primary uh, sources, some of the letters are now lost, so the letters contained in her book are now the primary source from which we can make, uh, make those assumptions, which uh, I think Gilbert would have appreciated that irony. But in the first line of the book, she reminds us that John was the son of an English Protestant and an Irish Catholic. Literally the first line. Now, strictly speaking, that's not quite true, because his father was actually born in Dublin, uh, albeit of an English father, but Protestant he certainly was. And Gilbert's parents were married in 1821, and Rosa notes that the marriage was a very happy one, and such a state of things was more remarkable in the earlier part of the 19th century than it would be at the present time. Now, she always expresses sentiments like this any time sectarianism comes up, and uh, I think she could, uh, would be disappointed, shall we say, by what has happened in the, in, the hundred years, in the hundred years since. The five children of the marriage were reared in the Roman Catholic faith. Um, I'm being slightly pedantic here, but I will always refer to it as Roman Catholic faith because that's what Gilbert did in all his publications to make absolutely clear uh, what he was talking about. And she tells a colourful anecdote of how John Sr. wished for John Jr. to be brought up a Protestant. His mother refused. His father said, you think that you are providing better things for him in a future existence, but believe me, you are doing your son a grievous wrong where this world is concerned. <laughs> wonder, wonder about that story, but it still makes for a good story. Um, the chronology of his life, and I'm not going to, this is not a major biographical piece, so I'm not going to dwell too long, but the chronology of his life was that he was educated at St. Vincent's Seminary in Usher's Quay, which then uh, morphed into Castlenock College, then at Prior Park uh, College near Bath, a high-class school for children of what Mulholland referred to as the old faith from both England and Ireland. 
He did not go to Trinity College, again to quote Rosa, because Irish Catholic parents, jealous guardians of the dearly bought and hardly preserved faith of their children, cherished even more than the present dread spirit of Trinity College. So not one to mince her words when she, when she wanted to. For pretty well all of his life, Gilbert lived with his mother and sisters and actually some cousins as well. In the 1850s, they moved to a very fine house out in Black Rock called Villanova, where Gilbert spent basically the second, more than the second half of his life, uh, probably two-thirds of his life. We have a few pictures of Villanova. It's now an apartment block, like uh, a lot of these things. Gilbert worked in the uh, family wine and cider business from a young man of 19, and he sold his interest in the 1860s when he took up his position as secretary of the uh, public records office. His income then mainly came from the family business, but he did have some paid positions, uh, both as Secretary of the Public Records Office and as representative of the uh, uh, Historic Manuscripts Commission, and he was paid for the compilation of the ancient records of of the City of Dublin. We'll talk about that uh, later. In the mid-1880s, Gilbert invested a significant proportion of his wealth, and there's a resonance on this one, uh, in the Munster Bank, which then failed spectacularly because of the, shall we say, illegal activities of some of the leading officers of the, uh, of the bank. And again, Mulholland refers colourfully to a story where Gilbert was re- reputed to say, is it not a strange experience for a man who wakes in the morning believing himself secure in the possession of a fair share of the needful goods of this world to go down to breakfast and read his ruin in the newspapers. <laughs> we do it by, via Morning Ireland, but uh, uh, um, he did it in the Irish Times. And the financial pressure on Gilbert at the time to, to clear off these debts, a uh, sort of 19th century version of burning the bondholders, was such that he was actually forced to consider selling Villanova and indeed his collection. Thankfully, he didn't have to do so. He had a couple of crises in his life. And again, I'm not going to dwell. This is, this is not going to be a, a Gilbert bashing session far, far from it. But he had a couple of crises in his life. And let's put it this way. He had to take time out a couple of times to just uh, get himself back together again. But he did get back together again and resumed his career uh, and his publishing after both of those uh, incidents. Uh, as a young man, I think you could certainly characterize him as a, a man in a hurry. At the age of 19, he was already on the, uh, the Council of the Irish Archaeological Society. Now, I often suspect when you look at uh, uh, young people like this, there's a little bit of, oh, well, he's volunteering to do it, so we let him off. Uh, but he was mixing in doing so, and again, sorry about the, the print there, you can probably see them. Um, have a look at the names there. You'll recognize a lot of them. Now, this is a few years later when it's the Irish Archaeological and Celtic Society. But they were both in the same business, the publication of original material. They were quite successful at that. Gilbert gave, at the end of the 1850s, wrote about a 40-page article where he went through each of the 14 volumes that they had published up to that point. So these were important uh, publications in the uh, 1850s. Again, if you look at the list of names there, uh, they include at various times Isaac Butt, William Smith O'Brien, Charles Gavin Duffy, Samuel Ferguson, John Mitchell and William Wilde. You know, a not inconsiderable bunch of, of people. The objectives of the Celtic Society, just using the quote from them, but the others were the same, were to publish original documents illustrative of the history, literature and antiquities of Ireland, edited with introductory essays, English translations and notes. 
that was their aim. And this was part of a whole series of, of similar societies uh, set up at the time. Uh, I'm involved with the Royal Society of Antiquaries of Ireland, and it was set up in 1849 in Kilkenny. Similar type objectives, not so much the publishing, but more about uh, research and preservation. And I have some very interesting late 19th century photographs from our collection to, to, to just illustrate some points at the end. Undoubtedly, Gilbert's great love from, at an institutional point of view was the Royal Irish Academy. He was associated with the Academy uh, for pretty well all of his adult life, for 46 years. The story of his uh, abortive attempt to become a member of the Society uh, in 1852 um, has been told by others. His proposers were John O'Donovan, George Petrie, Charles Graves, Sir Robert Kane, uh, Reverend Drummond, Samuel Ferguson, W.E. Hudson and John Piggott. That was pretty well as good as you can get and they still said no. Now, there are two versions of the story. One is that it was basically a, uh, shall we say, a foul-up at the administrative end and that just people didn't vote and nobody turned up and all that sort of thing. Uh, Rosa recounts that she felt that uh, the black beans, as, 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 as Gilbert called them, carried the day due to a spirit of sectarian prejudice. Not so sure. I think there could have been a little bit of class and a little bit of, is this guy too young? Uh, he was only 23 at the time. So there could have been a little bit of other issues going on. But certainly who refused, he was. But not a second time, only three years later, when, with the support of people like William Wilde, he was elected a member of the Royal Irish Academy, as I said, which he served uh, for the rest of his life. In fact, within a year, he was on the council of the Royal Irish Academy, and he was pretty well on the council and had various offices in the academy from then till the end of his life. For example, he was honorary librarian for 35 of those 40-something years, um, so, um, and he was on various committees. He was vice president in the 1890s before his death and actually turned down an offer of being president of, of the academy. In 1862, he was awarded the Cunningham Medal, which is the, society, the Academy's uh, highest award. Previous winners around that time were Rowan Hamilton, William Wilde, George Petrie, John O'Donovan, so again, illustrious company. And in recent times, Seamus Heaney and Maurice Craig, for example, have been awarded the Cunningham Medal. So this was a very illustrious award. And the reason he got it was for his Streets of Dublin book, which I will come on to in a, in a few moments. As I said earlier, he worked then for the Public Records Office in 1867. He was appointed as secretary, effectively number three in the office. Now, there's a long story as to why he ended up as number three, which I'll come back to uh, in, in, in a moment. Um, it wasn't the happiest of positions. Samuel Ferguson was made the deputy keeper, and he only got the number three position, which in a round of shall we call it downsizing or cost-cutting, um, seven or eight years later was abolished. So it was not the happiest of experiences for him. But he got some compensation in 1869 uh, when he was appointed the representative in Ireland for the Historic Manuscript Commission. And one of the first things he did was he said, look at all the folks I can talk to. Uh, he said, I have looked at all these records and there are vast quantities of material there and I can get you the detail on this. And he did. So through the 1870s, vast amounts of this, the detail from these uh, arch private archives, hitherto private archives, were made public through the deputy keeper's reports, and they are still obviously major sources today and well looked up and well used today by very, very, very many historians. One of the people he got involved in at that time, you can see there, is... Uh, is the Ormonds in, in Kilkenny, and he did have a way of getting on well with the grandees, shall we say. 
For example, the Marquis of Ormond uh, wrote, saying, he says, I desire that Mr. J.T. Gilbert, FSA, should take charge of my documents now at the Public Record Office, Dublin, and arrange all the further matter in consideration, connection with them, and their return to Kilkenny Castle. He's the only one I trust, in other words, type of uh, comment. And Gilbert, never one to miss, uh, to miss a trick in that uh, situation, used those avenues to make sure that he was the one that had effectively privileged access to these, uh, to these sources. Having said that, he spent a lot of time there in Kilkenny. He started the editing of the, uh, of the Ormond papers. They're so vast, actually, I forgot, I didn't even make a note of many volumes. It's 14 or 15 or something. He only got through a number of them was taken over by a chap called Falconer afterwards and actually had to be finished by Francis Ellington Ball, another great historian of Dublin, and that didn't get finished till about uh, uh, well into the 20th century. So it was an enormous project and, again, a very widely used, uh, used source. Now, so Gilbert the Man. What about Gilbert the Man? Rosa describes him as having a large, well-developed figure but that he looked older than his years. Not so sure I agree with that. That's it, the picture. We've only the two pictures that we show regularly. This is a young man, and then the other one as an older man, which we'll come back to in a moment. But there's no doubt that he was certainly a very convivial and social person. His range of distinguished correspondence, both from the historical community and indeed from aspects of the political and cultural community, and his friendship, for example, with Florence McCarthy and the Wilds. He was really, really friendly with the Wilds and spent a lot of time in number one Merrion Square. And maybe slightly anachronistic to suggest, but he was fond of and very friendly with Oscar. And, and uh, you know, he may have had some influence on, on the young Oscar because Gilbert was very fond, very fond of puns. Now, he might have been fond of it, but he wasn't actually that good at it. Um, he certainly was no swift with mock Latin and all the rest of it. I'll just give you one quote, and it's really not great, but it does illustrate the, uh, the point. He was writing to a Dr. Lyons who was interested in music and the preservation of historical Irish historical music. And it kind of just one sentence, he, he says, but isn't it useless to continue thus harping on, stringing words together merely to make them instrumental for our purposes? And so on. <laughs> so not exactly Swiftian in its, uh, in, its, in its language, but, you know, he was just take, making, uh, making fun. Again, as I hinted, uh, I'm not going to go into them, but he was involved in a number of scrapes, shall we say, uh, throughout his, his career, both public ones and behind-the-scenes ones to do with uh, uh, the Cunningham Medal, the allocation of the Cunningham Medal, to do with the Todd Memorial Fund, to do with the editorship of various publications before, during, and after the various times he was not in office, etc. So I think the conclusion is he was not an easy man to get on with. I think he was a solo runner, not so, much, not so good a team player might be another way of, another way of, uh, of putting it. But, as I said, he was... A charming man, and everyone enjoyed his company. Um, he was well used to, to managing the old boy network. His, his friend, uh, Ripton Garston, many years later talks about 13 RIA members meeting before committee meetings, of course. Uh, this would never happen today. Uh, members meeting in Mackin's Hotel in Dawson Street, which is just, I think it's where Carluccio's is today. Uh, um, and he says that, he says... Um, Gilbert was always the life and soul of these parties with ready repartee. His jokes were always enunciated with a dry humour and a twinkle in his eye. But then he went on, and I think this is important. He says, one thing we always strove together, strove for together, namely to maintain for the Academy Council its reputation as a public body where no consideration of religion or politics should be allowed to interfere with the management of men. Or the men, sorry. 
So I think that is, 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 is a, a sense of Gilbert uh, the man. I think just, just uh, two final stories and then we'll move on. One is he liked flattery as much as anybody else. And John O'Donovan suggested in a letter to him one time, he says, somebody asked me for your address. And I said, very simple, just Mr. J.T. Gilbert's Dublin will do, you know. And uh, he would have appreciated that sort of comment. Towards the end of his life, he was showered with honours, as, as often happens. He was made a director of the National Gallery, trustee of the National Library. He got an honorary doctorate of laws from Trinity, of all places, in 1892. And he was made Sir John T. Gilbert in the New Year's Honours List in 1897, just 15 months before he died. So, that's uh, Gilbert the Man. We know a lot of this because of the, uh, the, the, the work of his wife, Rosa Mulholland. Now, he married Rosa in 1891. Now, Rosa is an interesting character in, herself, in her own right, an extremely interesting character. She was a novelist and children's story writer. Yeats anthologized some of her work in his, in his canon-forming uh, 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 publications in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, she was quite radical in her views uh, on many issues. Today, she's mainly known for a novel called Marcella Grace, where in a sort of didactic novel, she tries to say, well, how are we going to get out of this landlord problem? Uh, this is in the 1880s. And even after the land war, she was still kind of proposing a sort of... She was, her analysis was that you had these lazy Protestant landlords. If we replaced them by Gaelic Catholic landlords, we could make things work better, you know, which was really already 30 years out of date and so on. So, you know, it, it, it's interesting. But she is an interesting character in her, in her own right. And, and she wrote this, this rather voluminous uh, uh, biography. And I suppose the last point I want to make about Gilbert, the, the, the man, is his book collection which was mentioned here uh, uh, earlier. Uh, one of the first things that the corporation did after purchasing was to organise for Douglas Hyde and for DJ O'Donoghue to, to do a catalogue of it. For a variety of reasons, the catalogue took quite a while. It was only published in 1918. He collected books all his life. It was a working library. Um, when you look at, there is a list of his early books, 315 early books, and there's quite a lot of poetry, interestingly, when you look at that. Um, but his, his later library, which was nine, nine or 10,000 items, um, is definitely a working library. Not many novels, but lots of, of historical stuff. Um, not surprisingly, Mulholland refers to Villanova in, in Black Rock. She says, as for books, they were everywhere. <laughs> bit like my house, uh, um, but uh, we won't go into that. In 1855, O'Donovan uh, signed off a letter to Gilbert. He says, I remain with great veneration for your family. I mean your books. Yours, yours, yours sincerely. He was also a lender of books. Uh, William Wilde uh, in the, uh, returned one to him in 1874 saying, oops, sorry, I've had this for the last five years. Uh, there it goes. But, you know, he, as I said, he, he, he was a serious collector. Uh, following his death, Rosa offered the collection to Dublin Corporation. The collection was reviewed by T.W. Lister and the same D.J. O'Donoghue, and the asking price of £2,500 was agreed to. They got it valued. I was reading this only, only last week. They got it valued, um, and the valuation came in at, at about 3250 and they said, well, we, don't, we think that valuation's a bit high. Make an offer of two and a half that's been asked for. Um, so that's what was done. It is full of wonderful stuff, and again, I have some examples here. I'm not going to dwell on these, but just to illustrate, first of all, there's his signature, which is on many of the, uh, of the books. 
They are full of wonderful bindings from various collections, Newenham pamphlets, for example. They are full of both Dublin and Irish printing, but a lot of expatriate Irish works, Latin and English works, published by Irish authors or in connection with Ireland on the continent. And again, if you're doing any work on the English short title catalogue, uh, it's not too infrequent that you will see the only holding is the Gilbert, is the Gilbert Library holding of, uh, of a book. They are also full of book plates um, from the Putlands, um, um, also a very interesting Dublin family. Um, again, some of them buried in St. Michael's in Church Street. There's another one from George Putland. And Putland, they are the Putlands of the um, out in Bray, where there are Putland uh, uh, streets and so on. He has O'Connell books. He was a great uh, tender um, or sending an agent to uh, book auctions and, 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 and so on. One thing, and I will make the point in a few minutes, he's not just a historian of high politics. Uh, Gilbert is one of the first uh, historians to have a great awareness of social history, economic history, and the need to, to blend the whole story of a city, and he does that brilliantly in the, in, in the city of Dublin uh, books. Plenty of uh, dedications. This one is uh, Dean Swift, Closing Years of Dean Swift's Life by William Wilde, dedication to Gilbert. Interesting book, because Wilde actually was the first person to establish that uh, um, Swift actually had a medical condition and not just uh, a, a dementia in his, in his latter years. Menhir's disease. Eugene O'Curry's signature, lots of signatures. And again, handbills and so on. Again, one of the ones I things I've used um, is, is some of the early newspapers. Again, some of them are the only examples from some of the very early uh, Dublin single-sheet uh, newspapers, and there's an, one outside that is really interesting, which is uh, a diary of the weather in Dublin in the first 40 years, approximately, of the 18th century, and I've used that. And actually, for your uh, local history uh, in Donnybrook and so on, there is a great description of the Dodder flooding after excessive <laughs> rainfall. Uh, Hurricane Charlie, here we come, and, and recently, here we come. Marvellous description of that in it. And lastly, bindings, some wonderful bindings. And then Gilbert's own, own book plates. Again, just, just I'm a great believer in, in indexes, so just a review of the entries under the letter P in, his, in the, in the catalogue shows uh, Thomas Paine is there. There are 18 volumes on St. Patrick, eight works by George Petrie, 12 work volumes of Sir William Petty's works, as well as Letitia P uh, uh, Pilkington, and very interestingly, 16 volumes where the title, because they're anonymous, the title is Popery, which is another uh, uh, interesting view. Cervantes is present, lots of Swift, but only one, only one collection of Shakespeare, not too much Macaulay, no Mulholland, which I thought was strange. <laughs> uh, and likewise, no Caesar Otway, which I thought was a bit strange as well, given that he was writing on the similar type of scene uh, just before Gilbert's time. I'm not going to go into uh, Rosa Mulholland's description of his death. It, it is very purple prose, but huge number of obituaries. One of the more interesting ones I came across is from the New York Times. You know, and it's actually, I think it is literally May 24th. Only 24 hours later. The Telegraph was well in action um, by then, obviously. They had this obituary out literally uh, a, day, a day later. So much for the life. What about the works? Well, they're too numerous to, to, to go into in great detail, so I'm just going to pick and choose. And the first one I'm going to look at very briefly is the history of the city of Dublin, 
which really made his name. These were published as a set of essays in, in the Irish Quarterly Review in the early 1850s, but then he revised and expanded and published them in book form, three volumes, uh, in, the, in, the 18, in 1854 and then in 1859. And it was the publication of this that led to him receiving the Cunningham Medal in 1862. It is a great read. I would recommend it to people. It is, it is a great read, it, and it deals with the individual streets in the city centre, None of your newfangled stuff like Pier Street or Townsend Street. I mean, this is, this is Swan Alley and, and right into the city centre. And just to illustrate, as I said, um, I, I, I just, just almost at random, but partly because just I had an interest in one point, just pages 11 to 13 in volume 2, for example, when dealing with Swan Alley, he has serious material dealing uh, uh, the high church Tory coterie called the Swan Tripe Club that used to meet in the Swan Tavern. But then he follows that up with a reference to George Hendrick, Crazy Crow Hendrick. He describes him as follows. He says, In Swan Alley were several gambling houses, frequented by sharpers and gamblers. George Hendrick, alias Crazy Crow, porter to several of the bands of musicians in town, as you can see, um, was one of the most eccentric and notorious Dublin low-life characters of his day. He dropped dead in the alley in 1762. He had been fined and imprisoned in 1742 for having stolen corpses from St. Andrew's Churchyard. A large and spirited full-length etching representing him laden with musical instruments appeared in 1754 and was sold through the town by himself with the following inscription. I'll read it. It's not great, but we'll, we'll, we'll read it anyway. With luck ferocious and with beer replete, see Crazy Crow beneath his minstrel weight. His voice as frightful, as great as Etna's roar, which spreads its horrors to the distant shore. Equally hideous with his well-known face, murders each year till whiskey makes it cease. So, yeah, not great poetry, but um, as I said, I really would recommend it. It is a very, very good, uh, a very good read. The second thing to just refer to in his work, and perhaps his most important non historical work as in content is his three pamphlets uh, in the guise of the Irish archivist. Now this was a full-blown pamphlet war where uh, the, the, the whole nature of pamphlet, or publication of historical records was undergoing change in the mid-19th century and Ireland was well behind. Uh, there had been work, and it's referred to outside by the Irish Records Commission uh, three decades earlier, in between 1810 and 1830, but they had published very little. In Britain, the Public Record Office had been set up in 1838, and that was beginning to give a model as to how this should be done. And nothing was happening in Ireland. So the Irish legal repository and a chap called Moran, James Moran, set to and published two volumes of Irish records, Irish chancery uh, records, in the period from Henry VIII to the 18th year of Elizabeth's reign, being the first volume, and the second volume followed shortly afterwards. Um, you know, even Gilbert thought the first one, he was reasonably complimentary in a letter to, to Moran about it. But having reviewed it in more detail and having assessed some of the issues, he issued uh, a set of pamphlets that were extremely critical of Moran's work, both at a technical level in terms of he accused him of plagiarism and at the risk of telling a joke badly. Uh, you know, the one about stealing one person's work is, is, is plagiarism. Stealing lots of people's work is research. Um, well, the, apparently the preface was very well researched, let's put it that way, and unacknowledged, which is really the sin uh, that, that he was on about. Questions in the house, an inquiry, the whole works. 
So uh, this went on and on for several years. And, and you know, it, Gilbert was correct at one level. Ireland was behind. The records were not being published. Access to the records was patchy. Um, again, where have we seen that before in terms of something like the Land Commission, for example? But let's, let's not go there. Um, there was also a debate over the standards to be applied. Uh, do you put calendars out or do you reproduce them? Do you photograph them, literally photograph them and reissue them? And all these debates were going on, and Gilbert waded into the middle of it all. Um, at one level, he was successful. The Public Record Office in Ireland gets set up in 1867, but as I hinted at earlier, uh, Gilbert had made too many enemies. So he doesn't get the top job, he doesn't even get the second job, which is what he was hoping for, that he'd get the second job but be able to effectively run the show. He gets the third job and uh, he's not really able to influence, influence it as much as he would have liked. Um, back to this point of team player versus, uh, versus loner, I think, is, is, is the point. The language at the time could be quite, quite emotive, um, and this is a point I want to come to uh, uh, just in the second half of the talk. In a letter to Gilbert in March 1855, uh, O'Donovan, for example, he says, I have no belief in any justice for Ireland or for any other country. Unless Ireland and such other countries are able to demand justice with the tongue or the fist or the sword, Ireland has lost all these instruments recently, she must therefore rest content with having injustice copiously dealt out to her. Now, he's talking about record-keeping here, right? <laughs> so he's not, this, is, this is not talking about landholding or, or, or ex export policy or anything. But he was encouraged by his friends. Uh, uh, Reverend Graves uh, wrote to him in 1865 after one of the pamphlets was published, and he says, As in the former pamphlets, keen wit and biting sarcasm flash like a blue glint of the polished rapier in the hands of a practised fencer. So, you know, he was getting encouragement from people. Um, likewise, the Irish Times, I mean, uh, one of the surprises I found when, when reading this is, is the anti-English tone of a lot of Irish Times articles at this time. For example, one of the inquiries was carried out by two leading uh, English archivists, Brewer and Hardy. And the Irish Times says, well, why were English antiquarians employed to decide on the quality of the translation of Irish material? You know, may or may not be a fair, fair point. Gilbert kept up the pressure uh, with public appeals via the Irish Times, etc. Um, but as I said, uh, it didn't work out for him too well in the end. Having said that, he forced the pace Public Record Office was set up in, 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 in 1867. One of the things it did, of course, was to start to centralise records, and we won't go where, unfortunately, all that ended up 60 years later, but that's, a, that's another story. In the meanwhile, he continued to publish. In the publication of Dublin, um, Speranza uh, Wilde, which is William Wilde's wife, had written to uh, Gilbert saying that... Uh, you know, I have only one small complaint, uh, she says. She says, In the history of the Philosophical Society, you scarcely appreciated my husband's labours. From the passage, one might think he'd only compiled catalogues, where he was the first one who wrote the history and told the world of, that all that is known on this subject. And, uh, in fact, uh, all that is known on this subject has expanded very considerably since the Irish Manuscript Commissions have published two volumes that are that thick on the Dublin Philosophical Society. But she, she continues, she says, in 10 or 20 years' time, we'll, we'll people will certainly think that W.R. Wilde was a poor wretch of a clerk who copied catalogues for a light livelihood when vapid commonplaces are thought worthy of immortality in Mr. Gilbert's history of Dublin. That's a little over the top. But then she says, actually, I'm really only teasing you. You can bear a little censure, can you not? At least from me, you know I hold your talents in the highest esteem. 
So, uh, and that's William Wilde uh, there. So, he continued his own works. He published, uh, the next work he published was The Viceroy's of Ireland, which is one of these kind of, again, source and description type books where, where, where he's using new material. He's giving short biographies of all the viceroys of, all the viceroys of Ireland. It is published to rave reviews at the, at the, at the time. Um, again, again, just a quote from one of them. Uh, As a contribution to our knowledge of Irish history, it is of unquestionable value. Uh, this is, is, is from the London Review. However, the reviewer then goes on to say, the review, uh, but here we fear our praise must stop. Mr. Gilbert is rather an archaeologist or a chronicler than a historian. His narrative is dry, hard, and unpicturesque. His facts are a mere succession of items and do, do not fall in with or suggest any, any general view. And... Um, I suppose it would be a point you could make about him uh, uh, in that it is, you know, a list of things rather than a grand narrative. But I have some quotes later about how Gilbert felt about grand narratives. He would have been uh, uh, delighted uh, by uh, anybody saying that he was putting the facts in front, in front of people. The next piece was he published several volumes, some at his own expense, on the Confederate Wars and the 1640s and the 1650s. And I'm not going to dwell on it in any great depth, except to say that he put a huge personal effort into it. I think he felt that this was his contribution to Irish history, that this is what he was going to bring to the table. In particular, he, he, he published uh, Sir Richard Belling's account and a, a piece called The Aphoristic, da, 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 a big, long title, a, an account of the 1640s from the north of the country. They both have been... As, as one recent scholar put it, because they don't get used that often, have been underused by historians uh, in the last century. But they are actually important pieces and are still used and perhaps should be used a bit more. He put enormous effort into that and, as I said, published some of these at his own expense as, as late as the 1690s. The other thing that he is remembered for is the calendar of the ancient records of Dublin. He was involved with seven volumes out of the 19 volumes that were produced. His deal was that he would be paid uh, 10 shillings and sixpence a page. And as each volume was roughly 500 and something pages, that was roughly 300 pounds a volume, uh, which was not bad in those, in those times. And he did seven volumes. After he died, his wife, Rosa, continued the process. However, and wait for it, her rate was reduced to seven shillings a page. The rationale was that as most of the translation work had been done and as most of the deciphering of the Middle English and, and, and the hard handwriting had been done, that it didn't need such specialist knowledge to, to complete the project. But that was the argument. And she saw it through to volume 18 with some assistance from a colleague. She actually died before the last volume was produced, which was only produced as late as 1944. So it started from 1887 to 1944, 19 volumes. Magnificent piece of work, an absolutely fantastic piece of work. It pulls together records from an extremely wide variety of sources. And of course, Murphy's Law is, I've got all of these all mixed up in my own uh, handout sheets here, so remember which ones are which. These are just examples of the sources that have been used to compile it. This is the chain book of Laws of the City from 1316, one of the treasures. This one is complete with little drawing of, what's his name, wherever he's gone, here he is, um, Walter the Steersman. Again, 
lovely picture of them there. This is the cover of the chain book. Oh, no, the cover of the white book, which contains some of the other records. This is the grant of land to William Russell in 1236. And all of these have been deciphered and worked through and printed in various parts, appendices, etc., to the, uh, the volume. This is the franchise roll from, again, I don't have the date on this, but it's uh, obviously an early one. This one is Thomas La Harper. Again, same like the, the previous one, again, the image of the harp to, to, to describe him. And lastly, another roll uh, from it. So these are beautiful objects in themselves. Um, he worked with them for many, many years. He had a familiarity with these. His first piece of work for Dublin uh, Corporation was 1866, so he had a long association with the city and its muniments, as he would uh, 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 call them. And a last one from them. Just as a piece of uh, uh, illustration, this is a piece from my own piece on Dublin in 1707. And if you look at the uh, third column, you can kind of see what, what my main source is because uh, when you're quoting the calendar for ancient records, it's, uh, it's shortened to C-A-R-D. So literally, almost the entire story of what I was telling was coming straight out of the calendar of ancient records. And this comes to the point where we talk about bin collections. Because uh, in reading the calendar for the first 20 years of the 18th century, which is what I was interested in at this time, um, the strategy on cleaning the streets and bin collections literally varied every two or three years. They would privatise it, set up their own institution, give it out as a contract, charge, privatise, give it out as a contract, set up their own institution. It just would turn and turn and turn. It makes for a wonderful story. And the other story that, again, and, and this is where Card is absolutely wonderful. You can get these magnificent stories of what goes on in the city. Again, one is the prison. Again, prisons were privatised in those periods. And there is a wonderful story, which you can see in card, about Richard uh, Blondeville, who was granted the concession to open the new Marshalsea prison. But in 1705, he basically said, I'm not being paid by the prisoners, and you owe me money, and the prisoners put in a counter-petition saying that, that he was denying them food, etc., etc. So you get a whole sense of a whole story, of a whole incident. You get about 50 names that we would never otherwise hear or see. Uh, we can see the dynamics of the corporation. You can see the dynamics of the way the prison worked. They are, you'd think these things are dry, but they're not. You know, you can really read and work and work at them. The corporation has continued, and now Dublin City Council, the honourable tradition of publishing works on the history of this city. Just to name four or five from recent times, there's been a book on water and drainage, one on city managers, one on town clerks. I see outside, actually, a dictionary of Dublin in 1738, compiled from card and other similar, uh, uh, similar sources. Georgian squares, Dublin city walls, I could go on. Um, so the city has continued a wonderful tradition of, of this. Now, I'm going to wrap up uh, shortly. I just want to make one last point about his, his own uh, his works and then something about context. Firstly, he was uh, an author within the Dictionary of National Biography being published in London at this, at this time. And Moir has estimated, actually not estimated, counted 104 entries varying from Middle Ages through to his, near, his friends, actually, because some of them he knew these people. One of the graves, for example, uh, is, is there. I've looked at a few of them. They stand up very well. I looked at people he would like and people he wouldn't like, mm -hmm. and then looked at the current entry in the recent 
Royal Irish Academy Dictionary of Irish Biography, and they stand up well. He makes a few points, but they stand up well. The only one he really criticises is Walter Harris, because Walter Harris had published on Dublin. Uh, he thinks it's very inaccurate, and, of course, the big sin... Harris then gets reproduced and reproduced and reproduced by other people without the people going back to check the original source. And for Gilbert, this is a great sin. And Harris was the font for many of those errors. So he's very critical of Harris. Um, but his DNB entries are well worth are well worth reading. So my last theme, which is context. Very briefly, three short contexts. First off, historic practice. Now, who is this? This is uh, Leopold von Ranke. Now, Ranke is the great uh, historian of the mid-19th century who, who pushed forward the agenda of how history should be written with his wonderful phrase, wie es eigentlich gewesen, history should be written as it really was. Now, of course, that cannot be done. But he was saying, and Gilbert would totally, Gilbert would be a card-carrying Rankian as far as this sort of philosophy uh, uh, would be concerned. Rankin would have other wonderful quotes to talk about. Uh, he says, the, the historian must extinguish their own personality, not let it get in the way, and so on. Unlike Macaulay and Froude and many others, Rankin used did not use the past in order to seek to justify the current situation. He used the past to understand the current situation. And again, Gilbert would have strongly agreed with that. Not everyone agreed. One of Ranke's colleagues in Berlin called it the objectiveness of a eunuch, which is a rather a, a tough way of, of saying it. But I think, uh, er, uh, again, a recent historian, Eric Hobsbawm, put it right. He says, historians are professionally obliged not to get it wrong, or at least to make an effort to do so. And I think Gilbert would have been, would have been very much uh, in, that, in that space. As already noted, he wasn't a literary stylist himself, so, and he kind of knew that. So he said, let the documents speak for themselves. And I want to just give you a couple of quotes that will try and illustrate where he was coming from that, if I can just put my finger on them. Likewise, Gilbert was one of the first people to introduce um, footnotes, proper footnotes, that you can actually go and repeat the exercise yourself, as opposed to some vague footnote that you would have to spend uh, an awful long time finding the source. I'll come to those quotes from Gilbert uh, in a moment. So historical practice is moving towards V.S. Eigentlich gewesen, trying to describe it as it really was, and Gilbert would, would agree with that. But we're also in mid-19th century and late 19th century Ireland, and, of course, Ireland is part of the, uh, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland at, at, at this time. These are just a couple of photographs from the 1880s from the RSAI collection. But the first two are just interesting curiosities. But then you've got to remember another aspect of Ireland at this time, you know, the, the, the whole British presence issue. And this is my favourite one. <laughs> the, the Jubilee celebrations for Queen Victoria in 1897. Um, so, you know, this is the context within which Gilbert is working, right? It's an imperial context. He might be nationalist-leaning, he might have nationalist uh, views, but it's not nationalism in a separatist sort of way. This is, he, would be even, he would even find Parnell too far, uh, uh, I would have thought. These are separatism, it's, it's not, it's not the, the objective. The objective is some sort of accommodation within the imperial, and don't forget, they're not even talking British, they would use the phrase imperial settlement. 
But as you know, uh, times, times were moving on. Now, he, it's not that he was naive. His correspondence does refer to, not surprisingly, all the current instances of the time, the famine, the Phoenix Park murders, uh, etc. They all get, not huge, but they get brief mentions. So it's not a case that he's operating in a political vacuum and doesn't know what's going, what's going on in the world. Likewise, yeah, for example, his comment on Lord Charlemagne's writings, he was looking at publishing them, should have a great interest for people interested in the home rule question. But I fear that the majority of our politicians are very shallow in their knowledge of real Irish history, and they are frequently falling into very ridiculous errors by relying on obsolete and inaccurate publications. That's just one example, and there are literally dozens of them, where what John Gilbert is trying to do is to set the record straight by publishing the record and saying, read it for yourself, make your own mind up. So just to conclude... Biography, as you know, is an ever-changing genre, and um, I haven't tried to do a, a revised biography of Gilbert, but I have tried to say, look, you know, who was he, what did he do, and where did he, where did he fit in? And what is his enduring legacy? Well, his enduring legacy, firstly, is his works, or at least some of them. While many are not now widely consulted, others, such as the calendar of the ancient records of Dublin, the city of Dublin, are absolute classics and, and are still widely used all the time. The second influence he still has today is his library that we've referred to several times. I mean, it is a wonderful source for historians of both Dublin and of 17th and 18th century Ireland in in particular. And I think his third legacy is is the way he pushed the historical agenda forward in the mid-19th century through the establishment of the Public Records Office uh, um, and so on. Again, one of the later, later legacies is the Irish Historic Manuscripts Commission then gets set up in 1929, very much on Gilbertian lines in terms of the way it works and the way it publishes and what it publishes and how it publishes them. And you should not underestimate the criticism it had to put up with. In 1941, it published the, uh, the letters of Lady Emily uh, Fitzgerald from um, Carton House, three volumes, and it got phenomenal criticism for why are we publishing this English imperialist uh, da, 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 da. You can imagine the sort of questions in the doyle that got asked for that sort of thing. And Gilbert would have had none of that. He was quite, while he is a nationalist, the calendar of the ancient records of Dublin, you know, five out of the six centuries that he deals with are populated by Englishmen. Effectively, you know, and he had no har- no problem with that. He says, "That's my city. That's how it works." So we will publish how it works, and source publication continues to this day. So I think, in conclusion, his own self-assessment, again quoted by his wife, was that he possessed an originality of conception and an unlimited tenacity and perseverance in pursuing objects, which I decided on as deserving. And I think that's probably pretty true. He published circa 40 books in his time. Almost all of them are records that were not available before he published them. They are part now of our historical heritage, and they cannot be taken out of our historical heritage because of that. And again, I know we shouldn't finish with German, but I think we will just go back to, he did try to live up to V.S. Eigenlich gewesen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. To hear more, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. 
You can also visit our website, dublincitypubliclibraries.ie, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.